episode, well, three. This is a little bit like our podcast, isn't it? Where the episode numbers are off of the, because we start with episode zero. <laughs> True. This one we didn't start. Maybe we should do that. Maybe this should be episode two because episode zero is the one where I explain what's going on in the course. There you okay, go. There we go. Yes, it's decided. Welcome to episode two. Hello. Reading number two. So this is the first case that we've read in this class. And I think it's appropriate, don't you? Marbury against Madison? I do. It's one of the most famous cases in American law, certainly in American public law. I I thought what we do is just kind of walk through this case and make sure we're all on the same page about what is being disputed, what happened, and what was before the court. But there are some big themes that I want to hit as well that, you know, kind of reasons why this case is important, reasons why the outcome is not obvious, and what we can learn about law generally from the way the court thought about and decided this case. So first of all, what's going on? Basically, the second transition of power in the United States is happening from John Adams to Thomas Jefferson. And the first transfer of power between political parties of very different ideas about things, right? So it seems very consequential. In a nutshell, there was a plan to pack the court with Federalists, right? Which is the political party that is outgoing. They want to, they want judges. Did I say the court or I meant the courts, uh, the lower courts here? They, they wanted their judges to be in power. And so they, uh, Congress passes an act, which is basically a lower court packing plan, last minute, creating a bunch of new judgeships. And the president attempts to fill all of these new judgeships with Federalist appointees. After confirmation, and this is how things work, so you, you, you may have gotten from the case or you know generally, right, that the president has the power to uh, appoint judges by and with the advice and consent of the Senate. And here, um, there were these, this all happened, the president nominated judges and the Senate confirmed them. But the way this kind of physically works is there is a commission, right? The president uh, commissions judges and sends them. There has to be delivery of this actual piece of paper commissioning the judges. It's delivery of their commission. And this one judge, as well as some others, Marbury, wasn't commissioned before Jefferson took office. So Jefferson comes into the White House and these pieces of paper, which are the commissions, which would actually confer the judgeship on these judges. So nominated, confirmed, but not yet commissioned. Not yet commissioned, even though there's nothing in the Constitution about commission, right? Interesting, right? There's this practice, though. And so there are these pieces of paper in the White House. And Jefferson says, you know what? They aren't judges yet. They don't have these commissions. I'm not going to deliver them. So Jefferson refuses uh, to deliver these things. And Marbury says, wait a minute, I've been... I've been appointed by the president through and by, confirmed. And with, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate. So I am a judge. Give me my piece of paper so that I can show up in the courthouse and start deciding cases. Right. Implicit in the claim being, Jefferson, you don't have the discretion. You're the president, fine. But you don't have the discretion to fail to deliver the commission. Right. It would be as if, you know, I was appointed to some uh, department by the prior president and you have no authority to keep me out of it and all I need is the key to my office and you're saying you can't have the key, right? There's nothing <laughs> that the Constitution requires you to allow me to do my job, right? And, and so here uh, this happens and Marbury sues and, and he sues to say, uh, to get Jefferson to perform what you would call exactly in that language, Joe, that you used, a non-discretionary duty. Like you don't have the power not to perform this and you're deciding not to unconstitutionally and so I'm going to sue to make you do it. He sues directly in the Supreme Court. He doesn't start in a trial court like in the, in the way that we learned in the first section of the case book uh, or the textbook that you start in the trial court and then you appeal to an intermediate court and then you may appeal again to the Supreme Court, which may or may not take the case. He doesn't do that. He sues for what is called mandamus, 
right? A writ of mandamus, which is just an order from the court ordering someone to perform a non-discretionary duty. You, you might, the law says you have to do this, you must do this, it, you, you have no judgment in it. So the case is in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has to decide, well, wait, are we the right court to decide this? Could, should, he, should he have sued here? What, should this have started in the trial court? Do we have the power to issue this thing? Should we issue it? What's going, like, there's a whole jumble of issues here. Lots of questions. Which is like, is he even right that Jefferson had the duty to do this? And, and if so, are we the right entity to do this? So there are all kinds of questions jumbled two, together. And, and just those two questions, two very different questions. Yeah. He can, you know, Marbury can be right uh, about his underlying assertion and he can be in the wrong place to get it vindicated. Right. Those are two separate things. So the first thing the court does is, and we can, I want to talk about whether they got the cart before the horse here. The court agrees that Marbury should have gotten the commission and that mandamus was the right way to order it. So in other words, Marbury's right that once he's been nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate, he's, he has a right to be a judge. He is a judge and the president has no authority to block him. So the president needs to deliver that commission. And they agree that this mandamus action, in other words, they, the, that the, that the um, petitioner Marbury has, has actually cited the right law, the right hook on which this relief can be ordered. But that's not enough. We still need to know whether the Supreme Court of the United States has the power to issue this order. And a complicating factor here is that the court is the right place to start certain kinds of legal disputes. So in general, we think of the Supreme Court as an appellate body, a body that reviews the work of other courts. That's generally true. And if that were exclusively true, it would be really easy to see that Marbury had started at the wrong courthouse. But it isn't true, 100%, right? Some of the stuff they do, they hear as an original matter. Well, in fact, the Constitution says the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction, meaning you can start your suit there, in all cases affecting ambassadors and other public ministers and consuls and those in which a state shall be a party. So if you you sue a state like, you know, Georgia, uh, you could, you know, you could start your suit there or Georgia could start its suit there. And oftentimes the Supreme Court does today hear cases between two states over things like water rights. Correct. Like this water battle between Georgia and Florida and some other states. Right. Are started you, in the you can go court. and start your case there at the Supreme Court. So that's why I, I mention this simply to say it's it's not it's not uh, just on constitutional grounds alone. It's not crazy to think oh the Supreme Court could hear something as an as an initial matter without having been somewhere else first. No, there's Constitution says there's some stuff like that. So the Constitution says what I said. It does not include though in there anything about writs of mandamus. Right, it, it, this doesn't appear to fall exactly in. Uh, it doesn't appear to fall within that language, right? The st- state's not a party. Uh, this doesn't, it's not an ambassador. It's not an ambassador. It may not be a public minister or consul. Right. Con- no, consul sounds similar to ambassador. And if you look up the word, uh, it does have that, uh, putting aside the reference to ancient Roman history, uh, it does have that sort of uh, uh, international representative yeah. flavor to it, right? Uh, so public minister, like, what is that really about? Uh, so it's, you know, it's hard to say for sure without doing a little bit of digging. And again, it, it's in the case, but I want to emphasize, uh, not only does the Constitution say that, that the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction in such cases, it also says, in all other cases, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction. So it really looks like text that's trying to cover the waterfront. Some of these over here can be like this. All the other stuff is like that. The question here is, does the Supreme Court have the power 
to hear this case, which as you know from the first section is what's known as jurisdiction, right? Does it have the power to speak here? Subject matter jurisdiction in particular. And well, there's nothing in the constitution. However, the the Judiciary Act of 1789 does purport to give the Supreme Court the power to issue writs of mandamus. Okay, so there's a statute. Okay, well, okay, so the Constitution doesn't do it, but the statute does it. But wait a minute. Does the statute, is the statute inconsistent with the Constitution? It says in all other cases they shall have appellate jurisdiction. And here's Congress trying to give them authority to issue writs of mandamus. Is that appellate jurisdiction or not? So there's some questions here which we'll get into about whether... Congress had the authority to pass this statute, how the court should interpret it. There are all kinds of questions here, but they all go to the power of the Supreme Court to decide this case. That brings us to one question here, or at least the first question that I want to ask you about, Joe. In the part of the case that I summarized for the students but didn't include, the Supreme Court decided that, yes, Marbury was right. Marbury should have been, you should have been granted the commission, and mandamus was the right remedy. And so now we're just deciding whether we have the power to do that. That's what the Supreme Court says. Um, should it have even said that? Like, if it doesn't have the power, if the Supreme Court doesn't have the jurisdiction, then why would it, why should it, or could it, even get to the merits? The merits being, you know, the ultimate question about which they're fighting. So I think the, I think a good answer, it might not be the best, but I think it's okay. I think a good answer to the question is, um, in light of the fact that the question about jurisdiction winds up raising a question about what the Constitution permits or forbids, mm-hmm. right? So it's a very serious question yeah. about constitutionality of a piece of federal legislation. Yeah. Given that, that that's implicated, right, um, it, you probably don't want to get into a question like that unless you know you really have to. If there's right? another way to resolve the case. Resolve it that way. Right. And so figuring out whether Marbury has a claim that on the merits r- really is substantial and, and it seems like he's, he's got a really good argument on his side. So, so making sure he's really been wronged is a way to say, look, I really, it really is important to figure out the constitutional question. This is a case where the, the answer to that constitutional question is really worth the trouble. And worth the seriousness of figuring out, because it's not like we've got a guy in the courtroom who's just got a totally frivolous and ridiculous claim. Because if mm-hmm. that were true, we could just say, your claim is frivolous. Assume we have jurisdiction for purposes of argument. Your claim is just a joke. Get out of here. Right. So thinking about the merits and thinking about jurisdiction can have this kind of relationship. Right. So my, my ridiculous example is, suppose I argue that the Clean Air Act, federal statute, makes me president of the United States, <laughs> right? Would that it were so. There's, there's, a, there's a question about whether a federal statute which purports to make another citizen president of the United States is constitutional. I say there's a question. It's obviously unconstitutional, right? <laughs> right. Because the constitution right. itself. Pur- if it really said that, that would be a problem right. for the statute. Uh, so, so one nice way of dealing with that, I, I think that's such an obvious constitutional question that the court wouldn't mind, but it is one of great weight, right? Because if a statute actually did purport to do that, that would be a very, uh, you know, it, it would be very unconstitutional, I guess we could say, right? Uh, but an easy way to deal with that case is for the court to say, no, it doesn't. It, the, the statute doesn't make you president of the United States, right? We, we could do that. And so in order to avoid that constitutional question, why don't we just resolve it as a statutory matter? Like we have a preference. So we could resolve that case either by saying that 
if the Clean Air Act made me president of the United States, it would be unconstitutional as applied, right? Right. Or we could say that the Clean Air Act doesn't make me president of the United States. So much easier to just... And to make them parallel, you could say, if we had the power to decide this case, we, we right. would reach the conclusion that the statute doesn't make you president. Or you can say... If the statute made you president, it would be an unconstitutional statute. So it's this way of doing a conditional statement as a hook for the other statement. Right. Uh, and courts do this all the time. Well, so constitutional avoidance is a is a is is both kind of a, um, a, a canon of interpretation. Like let's interpret the statute in a way that avoids constitutional problems, but also a, a, a kind of preference. Like if we can resolve this case on right. statutory grounds, we're not going to get into the constitutional grounds, right? So we're your question to me is: It should they even talk about the merits in the case? Again, circling back, I think it's a, I think it's a good answer to say, yeah, the reason why it's okay to talk about the merits here, even though we wind up concluding we can't hear this case on the merits, <laughs> is because we needed to make sure it really was worth it to be involved in this conversation at all, given the gravity of right. concluding we don't have jurisdiction here on constitutional what grounds. I, what I want to flag for the students, though, and we can continue this conversation in class and maybe hear what you have to say here, Joe, is that... That general argument about not declaring an act unconstitutional unless you have to, right, that that is especially controversial as a method of deciding cases when the unconstitutionality goes to the jurisdiction of the court, right? Um, This kind of hypothetical jurisdiction. If we had the power, then we would decide this, right? But you don't have the power. Now, why is that controversial? Because what do you do with that decision? What do you, what do you do with that hypothetical decision? Like the court saying, like, we don't, if we had the power, we would find that, yeah, indeed, Marbury should win. Right. Um, but we don't have the power. Therefore, you know, we, we can't do anything here. Right. I mean, you can think about it in this, to make it more concrete, you can think about it in this case. Let's say Marbury, after he gets this decision from the court, it's like, oh, darn it. I went to the wrong courthouse. So he takes his filing, he takes his legal papers, and he goes to a trial court and says, I'm here to make my claim for my commission. And now I'm at the right courthouse. Think about being that trial judge. Yeah. What do you do? Right. Because you've got in front of you the Supreme Court decision that says what they think the right answer is. But you're really the first court that has the power to give the answer that's been asked to give the answer. Are you really free to give a different answer? (laughs) And maybe you say yes, maybe you say no, but it's just worth thinking about what it's like to be that trial judge. And this is still something that's disputed. Justice Scalia was a strong proponent of not accepting kind of hypothetical jurisdiction. You know, if you don't have jurisdiction, you got to decide that first. And indeed, it is a general... And then be quiet. Yeah, and then be quiet. (laughs) Because you don't have the power to speak. And anything you do say when you don't have the power to speak is sui generis. It is like, it is not, it is not law. Um, so that is, and I think today maybe this case might be decided a little bit differently. I think the court would deal first with jurisdiction and not reach those merits. Perhaps. So once the court decides that they have to rule on the constitutionality of this statute, which purports to give it, the court, the power to issue this order, the court has to decide, well, is that constitutional? Because the constitution, again, speaks to the power of the court to hear cases as an original matter, you know, in, as, as basically the trial court, the first court to see it. And it has this language that we've already talked about, Joe, and it says in all other matters, the court will have appellate jurisdiction. And so it has to decide first, does this statute fit with the Constitution 
or does it violate the Constitution? And then we get to the really big question in this case. But first, we got to deal with that. Like, does this violate the Constitution? So we have to interpret the Constitution and interpret the statute, right? Which means, you know, there's some words there. What do those words mean for this case? You know, it, so this is, this is a lot of what law is, right? It's looking at some words and then figuring out what the implications of those words are. And that's not an automatic exercise, right? So that's why there's an entire uh, field of law devoted to how to interpret texts and people, you know, um, disagree a lot about this. And I, I think most of our students uh, will, will know this already, right? That interpretation of the Constitution is a hotly debated topic, the proper method of doing that. Well, in this case, the court decides that this statute is unconstitutional. It doesn't comply with the Constitution because if the legislature has discretion to create additional grounds for people to bring suits in the Supreme Court as an original matter, then this language about appellate jurisdiction would appear to be surplusage. And so the first thing the court says is that there isn't a surplus language in the Constitution. When they, when they say all other cases shall be appellate in the Constitution, the framers, that, that has to have some meaning. We have, to make, we have to read the Constitution to make a distinction between appellate jurisdiction and other kinds of jurisdiction. If we don't, then that, that, it's like that passage isn't even there in the Constitution. And you should try very hard to avoid interpretations of that type. I think the court is pretty careful, actually, to 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 not to not say we couldn't possibly reach that interpretation. Mm-hmm. What they say instead is, um, given that it would have these consequences and those consequences are bad, it's not really the best interpretation. Well, so that's what they they say. Like in order to in order for this to fit, we would have, and if we're going to give these words effect, right? It that this statute giving. Uh, original jurisdiction over mandamus. It doesn't fall in the first category. It doesn't fall in the category, you know, uh, about ambassadors and other right. things. And so if this falls within the language of the Constitution, it must be because mandamus is a kind of appellate action, right? right? So um, so if the court only has jurisdiction, except in the first category, over, a, you know, appellate jurisdiction or you know, jurisdiction over cases on appeal, then we somehow have to find that this is an exercise of appellate jurisdiction, that this is the court acting kind of on appeal. And it really doesn't look that way. Well, they say, here's the quote. They say, it is the essential criterion of appellate jurisdiction that it revises and corrects the proceedings in a cause already instituted and does not create that cause. Right? I mean, it's a, this is a very basic, it, it reminds you of the very basic questions of law the court was dealing with. So it's interpreting the phrase in the Constitution. Um, it's interpreting the phrase, let me get it exactly right, appellate jurisdiction right? The power to hear things on appeal. And it says, well, what does that mean? Well, it says, whatever else it means, it means that another court has already acted and reviewing what went on in that court. Right. It seems obvious, doesn't it? But there was an argument that... Sure. And now there's also this, um, the court also mentions the notion of having a, a, a way to issue something that protects your appellate jurisdiction. Yeah. In aid of appellate jurisdiction. And, yeah. and I think there, what, what the court might have in mind is something like, what I did was I went to the trial courthouse and I tried to file my lawsuit to get it started and they wouldn't even accept my papers. Right. Well, now I'm in a bit of a pickle, right? Because if I go to you, you can say it's not appellate. Right. Because you didn't start your suit somewhere else. And I say, yeah, but the very problem is they won't let me start. Well, that was kind of... So the, having yeah. a way to get the appellate court to look at the trial court's refusal to even let you begin is a way to think about having a procedure that could be in aid of or protecting appellate jurisdiction. You've got to let the guy start. 
Well, that's kind of the argument here, right? Like, well, one way of thinking about this, Your Honor, is I'm appealing the decision of the president not to deliver the commission. Like, there has been a decision of the United States government, right. and I am appealing that decision. But and the president's not a court. Exactly. But maybe the, the – and in your example, it's maybe the clerk of court that won't let you file. Maybe oh, the yeah. judge never – you know, or maybe there were some police officers out in front who never let you file. Good. Hey, great. And so we can make a hard case out of this, can't we? Sure. Um, you bet. And, and the essence here is uh, – of what the court is doing is a kind of judgment. And they're making they're, – they're creating a rule to anticipate the next reading, right? They're making a kind of rule about appellate jurisdiction, which it, it involves attacking what went on below in, a, in, a, in another court. Yes. Right? And it doesn't involve just attacking decisions of the United States government writ large. Right. Okay. So, all right. So let's, can we finally get to the big question here? Uh, once the court has decided that this statute, giving it the power to hear these cases over mandamus, like as, as an original matter. As an original matter. Rather than as an appellate matter. As if they are a trial court. Right. That that statute is unconstitutional. Right. Meaning that what Congress did was not authorized by the Constitution. That's what it decided here. But that's not enough because never before had the court ruled that it had the power. It had the power to ignore a congressional statute when it has decided that that statute is unconstitutional. So the basic question here is what does the court do with unconstitutional statutes? Once it recognizes that they are unconstitutional. should Because it didn't ignore the statute at all. It looked very carefully at it. Well, should they enforce <laughs> laws that they find to be unconstitutional? And, and so one question I have is, like, how could it be otherwise? Like, if a law is unconstitutional, isn't it unconstitutional for the court to enforce that? I'm, I'm trying to get at why this is a hard question. Because I think it, to the students, it may be obvious that once, you've, yeah. once something well, is unconstitutional... We live, in, we live yeah. in the world that Chief Justice Marshall created... So exactly. that's part of what makes it hard to imagine the contrary, is the author of this opinion, uh, the third chief justice, I think, and certainly one of the greatest um, and one of the most long-serving, uh, <laughs> uh, was very successful in uh, establishing some of the early ground rules for the national government, in, including the Supreme Court's role in that government. Um, but, you know, there are all kinds of things that, that people have encountered that that they'll recognize as alternative ways of thinking about something. So consider, for example, let's say you have some roommates and you know that you need to do some grocery shopping for the house. Mm -hmm. And one person writes the shopping list and they hand it to you and they say, you know, this is just my first take on the list, but, but you're the one who's going to do the shopping. So you're the one who's really in charge of the shopping list. Okay. That's a context where, you know, if you change some things on the list, that's fine. Right. Right. That's the whole context tells you. That some things that are on the list maybe don't belong there. Some things that should have been on the list maybe were left off. It's really up to you to come up with the right shopping list. That's part of your job. Part of your job is making judgments. Now, is this Constitution like the shopping list? Well, they're both written. So they have writtenness in common. But they have other things <laughs> that, that, where they're not the same, right? So, so part of understanding what you need to do in response to a quandary about what the next step is with a document and how it relates to some other document, well, it depends a lot on why the documents exist at all, what they're trying to accomplish, how people are supposed to use them to accomplish those things. Let me try to lay out the alternative very clearly so that we can see this other world that we do not have, right? And that's where we read the Constitution to be an instruction to each of these basic branches, right? The executive branch, the legislative branch, the judicial branch ordering them to act in particular ways and according to certain constraints, but not giving the judiciary 
power to police the other branches, or at least the legislative branch. It's hard to know with the executive, but at least with the legislative branch, not giving them the power to say that you can't do that. Let's take the First Amendment, okay? Congress should pass a law abridging the freedom of speech. And Congress passes a law that abridges the freedom of speech, according to, you know, at least that you and I say, Joe, would judge as abridging the freedom of speech. After some debate about what those terms mean. And, and in Congress, yeah, they had debated this. Somebody stood up and said, this abridges the freedom of speech. And someone else says, I don't think it does. Or even if it does, I think it's okay. And so they pass a law. Now, one way to deal with this is for the court to do what they did in Marbury and to say that this, you know, we look at this, we look at the Constitution, we think it bridges the freedom of speech, therefore unconstitutional, and therefore we're not going to enforce it. Like, that's, that's the world we live in. Another way is to say, well, this is a congressional statute. Congress doesn't have the power to do something like this, we think, but that's not for us to decide. Congress has already made the judgment that it is, uh, that it has acted constitutionally. Right. And we don't have the power to... Right. Ignore it. We simply have to implement the statute. Our job is to enforce um, statutes, right, and and to act within our constitutional boundaries as right. a court. Like we can't just start legislating. We can't do other things. We have to resolve cases and controversies. We can't expand our jurisdiction beyond what Congress provides or what is in the Constitution. So we're bound by that. Um, so the Constitution we interpret it and apply it in that way. But what we don't do is to decide whether Congress, in its decision about the constitutionality of its actions was correct or not. We just imply, we just apply their statutes. So with a shopping list example, I guess, right, it would be, uh, well, what would it be in the shopping list example? I guess you would say that um, if there's a basic rule about like, you know, we need to make sure that the refrigerator is stocked with healthy, with healthful foods. Right. And someone's job was to go shopping, right? And they went out and they decided what they thought would be helpful that week. And they came back with some foods. They put it in the refrigerator. Uh, and, and another person's job was to make sure that the meals prepared were, were healthful. Am I, is this analogy not going anywhere? Well, you know, it depends. Again, it depends on what kind of problem you're confronting. So, you know, what do you do with the, with, with the roommate who comes back with cans of motor oil? Right. Right. Yeah. That sounds like they didn't do the grocery shopping. What do you do with the person who puts on the shopping list, renegotiate our lease to see if you can get us a lower monthly uh, rent payment? Yeah. Why is this on the shopping list? It doesn't belong on this document, right? Mm -hmm. So it depends on what kind of problems take place and how you're trying to respond to those problems. What what comes up across the board, though, is that writing things down is a way to try to direct people's next set of choices. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what the court struggles with in Marbury, at least on the surface, is, look, the Constitution took the time to write down that we were supposed to do some things as original and some things as appellate. Is this one of those instances where someone could come along and rewrite that determination, mm-hmm. take a different approach? Because there are some parts of the Constitution where you, you do know that you're going to have to make new decisions in the future that haven't been made yet. You talk in your first reading about, for example, the fact that Congress has these powers. One of the clauses is the necessary and proper clause. Yep. And, and you look at that list and you see it's a list of things Congress will be doing. So there's lots of decisions yet to be made. Okay. So there's a part of the Constitution that looks like it's looking in the future forward, making more fresh new decisions. Whereas this clause in Article 3 about what the court has the power to do looks like it was itself the making of a decision that's already been made, not a future one, a current right. one, right? Yeah. So you have to decide what kind of text you're dealing with. In order to know what the court should do. Yeah. In order to know 
is this for us to decide? Is this for us to enforce? Or is this for us to give some breathing room to Congress to decide what it should do? And and that is a theme that we will see repeated throughout the course. Right. And it will come up in our discussion of scrutiny and deference and interpretation much later in the course. But but here the court is, is dealing with what seems like pretty rule-like language in the Constitution and what seems like defiance by the legislature, you could put it that way. And if, you, if you're going to take a law that Congress wrote that seems to be squarely at odds with your best understanding of what the Constitution sets up as a structure and a set of limitations, then you're either going to enforce it and revise your understanding of what it means for something to be a law, or you're going to not enforce it and revise your understanding of what it means for something to be a law. Because, you know, that thing that we got from Congress, they voted on it. it they wrote it down in the statute books. It has the form of a statute. Well, if it's a statute, it should get enforced. So, you know, either, either choice you make, you're going, to be, you're going to have to update your understanding about what a law is. I want to go through three basic principles that I want, I want us to think about. Um, for our discussion, and then and then just close by walking through the argument that the court gives for why it has the power to declare void and 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 to not and not to enforce acts of Congress. Cool. And those three things, I think we've we've touched on. So the first is to remember that law is made by people, and legal institutions are made up of people occupying roles, right? And so the court is very concerned here with what it should do as individuals in response to what Congress did as individuals, right? And it has to... And in response to what the president did. To an individual, right? Correct. I mean, it's people all doing things. So these are not just, it's not just abstract rulemaking, right? It is a response to an evolving world of people occupying roles, doing things, talking to one another, right? So that's that's one big principle, right? Is to remember that law is made of people, my friends, right? <laughs> uh, the second is um, that courts, although they inevitably resolve disputes, that's how things come to them. People are fighting and you know, we're trying to figure out what we should do together. We need to think about, and the court is, this whole writing in this opinion, right, is about justifying what it's doing. But to do that, it has to decide what rules to use to make a decision, right? So the constitutional text provides some language which has in mind, hey, you know, Supreme Court, when you think about your jurisdiction, you can decide these things like a trial court as an original matter, but maybe not these other things, right? But the court has to kind of fill that out to figure out, well, okay, what does that really mean? And so a lot of what courts do is to formulate rules and standards in response to pre-existing written things, right? Whether it's an existing statute or something else, when we bend that existing language towards application in a case, we usually reformulate those words. We add other words. So you can think of it again like a board game or something else. You pick out the rules, and the rules say whatever they say. But one thing that you often do in a board game, so suppose the rules have a complicated rule about whether someone can go five spaces or six spaces or something else. What you often do is people will say, no, I think it means this, comma, because. And they'll make an argument about why it means this or that. Right. And oftentimes in that is a new kind of rule, right, which is a translation of the rule. And they're each trying to argue that my, my version of what should happen here comes from this rule, right? In the same way the court is doing that here by saying, hey, here's this language in the Constitution. It means we can't hear this case as an original matter because appellate means, you know, an appeal from a court below and not just a right. disagreement with a governmental decision. And in case there's someone wondering, as there well might be, would we make things better by giving the court a set of rules about how to 
work with rules or a set of standards about how to work with standards or whatever. Yeah. And the answer to that is basically yes and no. Uh, yes, it will make some things less open to debate, and that might help. But no, because the thing you just said, Christian, is always going to be true. Right. There, there will come a point where you're, you're, you're having to make decisions about what to do with a set of rules and standards for which there are no, are no other rules or standards yet. Mm-hmm. And so it's because you can't, can't just add another right. layer and think you're going to end this issue of humans judging what to do. Right. Law there will is, always be a foundation where there, someone's going to have to make yeah, a decision. No matter what, law is not a list of things which apply with absolute certainty. Right. There's always going to be something unanticipated because we can't foresee the future. So we can't write down what should happen in every dispute. And you'd have, to, and even if you did write more stuff down, you would have to decide what to do with that written stuff. Right. Yeah. Well, we're <laughs> getting into my research a little bit there, aren't we? With <laughs> like, sure. How does this ever end? How do you, what, gives the, what gives the authority its authority? The third big lesson here is the imagination of alternatives, right? Use your imagination to think about how the world could be different. And I think as Americans, there's like, especially since maybe the Warren court and some of the big free speech opinions and, um, uh, and search and seizure cases, like a lot of the, the, the headline cases out of the Supreme court involved the Supreme court striking down laws. Right. And that's kind of the, the, the political air that we breathe. And, What's really important, I think, for imagining law's future, even if that's true, like even if we're not going to revisit Marbury against Madison, right, there is great benefit in reading a case like this with fresh eyes and understanding that it all could have been different, right? It's, there's a, there, there is a world in which Justice Marshall had decided that the constitutional limits on Congress are for Congress to adjudicate, right? They are instructions to that institution for it among itself to figure out how they should behave, our role is to apply what they do to decide cases. That is a possible world. And it's only by seeing that with fresh eyes that even if you're going to apply what Justice Marshall did in this case, that you will see future cases as having kind of an open texture and the ability to, you know, and you'll see in it the ability to disagree and agree, you know, with uh, various sides of those arguments. So th- this is a, more, a broader principle um, that we have, I think, already referred to in our little chats here, Joe, and that's that a lot of what being a good lawyer is, or at least being a good reader of law, even if you're not going to be a lawyer, is exercising your imagination to understand how people could disagree and seeing how the world could be different. And so in Marbury against Madison, like, you know, basically as a, as a, as a modern reader who has grown up in the world of judicial review, right, judicial review being this idea that judges can pass on the constitutionality of statutes, we are throwing you smack against the wall of a possible future that never developed, right? This world in which the Supreme Court did not review statutes for constitutionality, where they didn't do the one thing that you may most associate with the Supreme Court, right? right? Which is declaring the constitutionality of statutes or other kinds of state action. So I think that's a big lesson here. Cool. Uh, Quickly, quickly, here's how the Supreme Court, I want to just reinforce this. I just want to go through the principles that the court used to determine that, yes, indeed, they do have the power to review the constitutionality of statutes and to declare them void and not enforce them. First, the act of, const- of written constitution making is difficult. It's hard to do. And people who do that exercise of making a written constitution a foundational document about how government should work, they intend for that agreement to endure. And, and a court looking at that document must recognize it as a kind of fundamental law. It's something maybe different than like ordinary lawmaking. Secondly, 
Fundamental law in the United States, in the form of the Constitution, has limited the powers of the institutions it's created. That seems to be the primary design decision in the document, is to create different institutions and limiting their powers uh, uh, within each of those institutions and forcing different institutions to perform different roles. And so limitation of power is one of the key design decisions in the document. Third, the legislature can't just abolish any of those limits. It's not free to amend the Constitution by passing a statute, right? The Constitution is superior. Therefore, an unconstitutional statute is not a law. If an unconstitutional statute were a law, then what meaning does the Constitution have? Okay, This all seems compelling, but I think the minute we say these things, we can imagine counter-arguments, right? Sure. Like, the question is not whether an unconstitutional statute is a law. Here, we're breaking in here, right? The question is who gets to decide whether the statute is unconstitutional, right? And so this argument has a lot of holes in it that you could push back on, and we will discuss in class. Okay, fifth, courts are not bound to apply void laws, laws which are unconstitutional and therefore void because, and here's this famous sentence, and I want to make sure we get to this, it is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. Those who apply the rule to particular cases must of necessity expound and interpret the rule. If two laws conflict with each other, the courts must decide on the operation of each. And so the idea here is that the court must apply some law, right? The court has to decide the case, and it's looking at what is the law. And the court is saying, I've got this one bit from the Constitution of the United States which says this, and I'm interpreting what it means. And it says that I only have appellate jurisdiction. And I've got this other bit of law from Congress which says I do have uh, um, original jurisdiction over mandamus actions. I'm kind of caught between two things. I have to do something. And so what must I do? Turn to the hierarchically superior law, the Constitution. It's not as though I can just apply law without violating some other law. Like in, in deciding this case, one of two laws is going to be violated. It's either going to be the Constitution or the statute. Guess what? I pick the statute because the Constitution is superior. Pick the Constitution because the Constitution is superior. Is that what I said? No, you said the opposite. But no, I, that, that's because I meant. Inv- that's because I think I said invalidate. Ah, like okay. I have to pick which Correct. one to violate, right? Correct. Yeah. Um. And and just to just to note that um this whole framing, right? You're already so deep into accepting the arguments, um, as opposed to being several steps back where you've said, "Look, I, the Constitution is a starting point. It's not the ending point. What matters is the most recent." statement from Congress about mm-hmm. what to do. Right. Uh, so you don't look at the hierarchically superior statute. You look at the source of law that's more recent in time mm-hmm. because that will always be the prevailing one because that will give you the the statement of Congress's determination because it's for them to judge, not for us to judge what does and doesn't comply with the Constitution. So you've, you, you would have to take several steps back in the tree right. to get to a point where you could be having a different conversation right now well, at the, court- the end of the tree. The court does make one argument along those lines, and it's the very next one in my, in my list, that they say, how could it be the intention of those making the Constitution that the Supreme Court should not look at the Constitution? Right? That, in other words, it, why would they write those words if they didn't mean... For, now, maybe again, we could say that gets back to like, what they were writing and they wanted Congress to pay attention to those words. Yeah, it's a starting Congress. point. So, so again, we're getting... Uh, uh, I don't know if it's it's cart before the horse, but it's it's kind of assuming that these words are for the court. How could they make? How could they write them uh, um, uh, and, and expect us not to look at them in a case like this? Um, one thing I wanted to ask here, though, is this is the first encounter we've had with an argument about intention. 
Like, what is the what what do the framers' intentions have to do with anything? I want maybe maybe students can think about that if you if unless you have thoughts you want to share now, Joe. But the only thought I would share is simply to also think about the word purpose and mm-hmm. how it might differ from the word intention and how that might differ just with the text. Okay, so we've got that. Um, you know, I think that's all that I want to do. There's some other arguments in here about the the oath that judges take, the oath to uphold the Constitution, which legislators also right. take. And I think, <laughs> right, exactly. So I think all of the arguments the court makes here to support the idea of judicial review are parasitic on this original decision that is that it is for the Supreme Court to read the constitutional limits in other institutions and use that, right, and to use that in deciding cases. And that could have been otherwise. Yes. Should it have been otherwise, Joe? Is Marbury correctly decided? <laughs> Rather than answer that, um, I would say that um, the, the very p- prominent example in all of their minds at this point in history, and indeed even today until very recently, relatively speaking, the, the UK approach, and, and it's the opposite. Right. It is it is legislative supremacy. Yeah. The absence of a single written constitution that purports to establish and get up and running a national government. And and there judges would do exactly what uh, Justice Marshall's uh, Chief Justice Marshall says we're not doing in the Marbury against Madison case. Right? Yeah. It, the, the court would say, what's the most recent statute? That's what controls. Right. It's, it's for the legislature to, to determine what should happen. And uh, the statutes tell us that, and that's where we look. And so if you're mentioning some other law, you're talking about something that's not relevant anymore. And they will all have had that in mind, right? They're perfectly yeah. aware that the country from which we just broke operates that way. So much of what he's writing is a contrast to UK approaches. And I, I want students to think, in addition to the three big themes that we talked about a bit ago, to think about what does writtenness add to anything? The fact that the Constitution is written, unlike in England, uh, where there, where it's custom and tradition, which are evolving and protect rights. I mean, there which are referred to as the Constitution, right? Uh, what does writtenness add? And then, in general, is there something about courts, lifetime appointment, um, usually elite style appointments? Is there something about that institution as a backstop which makes it particularly desirable to do things this way? If if Congress were the judge of its own of the constitutionality of its own actions, what would be worse? Would they would Congress even be the same kind of institution, right? If they didn't know that the Supreme Court was there as a as a backstop of rights, would there be, for example, continued laws over flag burning, um, even after the court has ruled that that bans on flag burning are unconstitutional? So there's a lot of grandstanding that happens in Congress. Would that grandstanding actually turn into acts which would have been declared unconstitutional right. or, would, or would Congress be a more careful judge of its own constitutionality or would the Senate, say, evolve in that direction and the House would be where there'd be a little more firebrand? A world without Marbury is a different kind of legislative world, right? And um, so I'm just wondering if there's A, something about writtenness and B, something about these institutions which makes this a particularly good way to do things. Can I add an, uh, one last thought? Sure. Which is to just to flag something that absolutely hasn't happened yet as of Marbury, which is the court declaring unconstitutional, not an act of Congress, which is another branch of the same level of government. I'm trying to connect this to yes. our prior conversation about verticality. Yeah. Um, but rather declaring unconstitutional the, the output of a state legislature. Right. 
a very different thing, perhaps, in need of different arguments, and also different in the sense that you might think a person could say, you know what, striking down acts of Congress are our sister branch. I'm, I'm really uncomfortable with that in a way that I wouldn't be uncomfortable striking down the output of a state legislature. Oh, you, right? so you think it might work that way. Which is subordinate. You're more comfortable striking down state acts. Perhaps I'm saying this is mm-hmm. a possible approach, right? I think I think Justice Holmes was of this view, mm-hmm. um, uh, for example. Intuitions are very different after the Civil War about that, right? After the Fourteenth Amendment and and where the national government is put in is seen as the more important government in terms of right. rights protection. Yes, right. A, a war which uh, whereas in orig- which, by the way, he he fought and was injured. <laughs> <laughs> whereas the the original Constitution saw states as the as the great protectors of rights, and the national government as this potentially malevolent force to be restrained. Right. Right. Um, although there were some, you know, the, the supremacy clause is there in the original Constitution. You know, it is the national it is national law which is superior, at least when it is valid, right? right. And so there are instances in which states can violate the Constitution, and the court does decide uh, right. early on. But that, my point yeah. is, as this exchange is illustrating, is a, 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 someone at that point in time and this, we have this in common, right? Um, answering one of these questions is not at all tantamount to answering the other. Right. Is they, they really are different things. That's exactly right. I think we should end it there. There's a lot to talk about in class, and I look forward to what people are going to have to say. Okay, until next time.